Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles, uh, and my, one of my primary roles in WAF is I get to host this uh, terrific seminar. Uh, so at the Women in Public Policy Program, we are committed to closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health and education, if I check my notes every time, the, our aspirations are so broad. <laughs> um, but the contribution of this seminar uh, toward that very broad mission is to connect um, cutting edge researchers with folks who are active um, conducting research and, um, and uh, promoting women's leadership advancement and um, interested in gender and public policy. And as order to create a, a constructive space for the development of new ideas, development and sharing of new ideas. Um, before we get started, there are a couple things I'd like to highlight before I get to introduce our speaker that we're very excited about today. Um, one is that today is Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, an important holiday. And as a result, there are a number of people who um, sent their regrets. Uh, so there are a number of people who couldn't be here today, um, and so we want to um, wish them a uh, happy new year in their absence, um, but we also want to highlight what will be, will be available to them is a podcast where, um, of the program, and so one of the things before we get started, I'd like you to imagine yourself not only just in this small seminar room, but also in a virtual community of folks who will listen to the seminar. So the, these, um, the seminar has been now um, downloaded more than 28,000 times, so it's a really actually a broad community of listeners. And so our norms are um, twofold. Um, one, we're obviously going to you know turn off cell phones and any other um, you know sound distractions that would make it hard to listen in for those in the room or outside. And the second is that we try to keep the conversation focused so that when we ask questions, we're actually asking questions, <laughs> and they relate to the subject matter <laughs> uh, being presented. So. Pretty low bar, um, but we uh, we like to stick to it. Um, okay, so with that business taken care of, I'd like to turn to um, introduce our speaker today, um, Gia Shua, who is a PhD candidate in social welfare at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as adjunct faculty at Smith College and uh, Rutgers University, and a fellow in the Women Women in Public Policy program. And uh, Gia's really. Um, inspiring research is motivated by promoting social justice and improving the well-being of vulnerable individuals and families who are affected by intimate violence. So her research is focused on intimate violence, dating violence in young adulthood, child abuse, gender-based violence, and international and cross-cultural context. And she is one of these people who has a, a real commitment to rigorous research, but also high aspirations to affect the world of progress. So a perfect WAP seminar speaker. Please join me in um, welcoming. So hi, uh, everyone. Thanks, Hannah, for the fabulous introduction. <laughs> and uh, my name is Gia. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at uh, University of Pennsylvania in the PhD program on social welfare. And for some schools, it's called social work. And I'm also a a research fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights last year in Kennedy School. So it's my second year in the Kennedy School. And I've been here for the web seminars almost every week for a whole year. And then, so I'm really familiar with this place. Uh, however, uh, Sarah just asked me, oh, have you ever presented this 
plug before. In other places, the answer is no. This is freshly made slice this week. So you are the first audience of this talk, the whole story, and also my, ju uh, my new project is under review, under read submission standards. So we just resubmitted an uh, article uh, the end of August. So nobody has heard about my presentation for today's everything before. <laughs> um, okay. So I was born in China, Beijing, the capital. And I spent more than 20 years in China and almost more than six, six years here in the US. So seven years ago, I was a student at a law school. And I was making the rounds of faculty and law firms, trying to find a place to take my summer internship. And until the end of June uh, 2010, Almost all my classmates find a place to have their internship. I didn't. It's not because I'm not good, I'm not well educated, or not qualified to find an internship. It just I cannot find a really good topic. I'm not interested in like other people's like fascinated about like for a law firms they want to go to courts. I'm, I'm interested in criminology, but not about like robbery, other kind of crime. So I have no idea right, where to go. I have no clue about my future. And one day, I was working in the library, law library in school, and then I saw a post. Uh, and she is the uh, poster. And uh, she is like the PI on the post. They are, she's asking for Chinese law school students for a research assistant for two international projects. The first one is sexual assault in workplace. And second is domestic violence in China. I found this very special because as a law school student for almost three years of education, I really, really, really heard about, hi Henry, that's my supervisor last year. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I really heard about domestic violence cases in the classroom. And it's, domestic violence is like among the list of like topics in law school, especially for my law school. And I found it special. So I, so I sent email to her, Nancy. She used to be a assistant professor at the Georgetown Law Center. But now she moved to Barry University in Florida. And I didn't expect, because that email produced short-term and long-term unexpected results. First, I got internship. She hired me to be a research assistant. I had a great summer with her and her students, 20 students from Georgetown Law School. And I get to know, open my eye about this field by interview uh, nonprofit organization, advocates, lawyers who are working, have been working in domestic violence for like more than 10 years. And second, I think I was so fascinated by the challenge of doing advocacy in the field of domestic violence in China. And then, I, so the long term is I didn't expect, never expect, realized that internship changed like my life, changed my career. From that time, I think I was so in love with this topic. I was so sure that I want to take this as my career in my whole life. And this is my advisor now, Richard Dallas. Um, 
And uh, as anyone in the into came into the field of domestic violence, violence against women, or gender-based violence, so the emotional aspect of seeing and talking to victims is heartbreaking. And also the challenges of trying to find meaningful um, solutions to help victims is challenging, uh, is frustrating. And also the differences of policy makers to the tragedy is infuriating. And also doing, conducting research, good quality research, and is continue to be challenging. So I, back to seven years ago, I found it's really frustrating to just see, talk to victims all the time and has no solution, no clue, because there was no national domestic violence law back to seven years ago. And after my internship, uh, and then I took an internship at China Supreme Court, and I met another advisor, Chen Min, and they all encouraged me to seek an advanced like, research-oriented program and in the US. They told me you can seek solutions by doing research. And as a law school student, I don't do research at all. And I took the advice and applied to universities in the US. And then, graduated from law school, I got the offer from University of Pennsylvania and okay. got into the PhD program of social welfare and started my studies at UPenn. And then during my study, I'm interested in using, using advanced statistical approach to solve the social problem. So I took another degree in Wharton School of Stats. And then last year, I got a degree and also got the offer from Car Center. Um, because I first love fly to work, but I didn't get the offer. <laughs> because Sarah was on medical, but my super brother Catherine, she's heading there. She kindly gave an offer, so I had the, I'm lucky to come here last year and be a fellow at Car Center. So I spent a wonderful year there. And then, so I can, this year I continue to be a fellow, take another fellowship here at WAP, and then to uh, continue my research. So my education and uh, research has been interdisciplinary and cross-cultural. So today's agenda, I'm going to focus on four aspects. The first is my research tra trajectory, and also mention, briefly mention several of my current projects. I think some of them are really interesting, and maybe we can, uh, looking forward to your comments, feedback, and look for potential collaborations. And also um, offer a research methods and results of an example of the current project, which investigates the use of social media, like uh, the Chinese version of Twitter, Weibo, to uh, examine the effect of domestic violence on mental health and also briefly mention my future research directions. So her name is Shen Shen Dong, Dong Shen Shen. Uh, she was born in 1983. And when she was 26 years old, she got married to this guy, Guang Yu Wang. And she, when she got married, she said, I was so lucky, I feel so, I, I feel I'm being protected by this man because she looks physically strong. Than me because she, he's so bigger than her, but this this ha this marriage has no happy ending. She died after ten months of marriage. During a short term of ten months marriage, her husband beat her severely and persistently. 
She tried to call the police like at least eight times, but the police told her, it's a family matter. We cannot use public force to interview a family. It was happened in 2008. And she died after 10 months of marriage. Her name is Kim. She is American, but she married a Chinese man. And her husband is very famous. It's called Li Yang. Many Chinese students here know about her. Uh, him. She, he is so famous. He's a famous English teacher teaching Chinese students how to speak English, to breathe, to speak out, and then to speak. Don't lose, don't afraid to lose face in front of public to speak English. And one day, uh, no one knows who she is. Even she is the wife of Li Yang. No one knows who she is until she posted her injured head pictures on the one of the Chinese social media platform Weibo, the Chinese version of Twitter. I'm going to use Weibo a lot of time today. So Weibo, and within an hour of the post, it, um, it's 2011, and uh, it has been retweeted more than 10,000 of times, and received comments of almost 4,000 of comments just within an hour of the post. And she also mentioned in her post, she reported to the police. But the police said, it's, oh, it's private family matter, and we don't know what to do. There's no law to tell us what to do. And she decided to speak out on the Weibo. And with the help of the activists or strangers from the social media, she filed a divorce based on the grounds of domestic violence. And she won, even they take several years, but she won, she got compensation because of her abuse history. And her case is a landmark from Chinese history of fighting to have a legislation for domestic violence in the history. And it has been reported on the news, New York Times, uh, Daily Post, uh, Washington Post a lot of times. So it's been become an like international famous case in China's domestic violence <coughs> history. So these two cases are similar. They're all like wife-beating cases, but they have totally different results. Many, many factors, many reasons cause the difference. Um, Kim is American, and it's cross-cultural marriage, so it's received more attention. Or her husband is famous, so it's also attract more attention by the public. But one difference is the use of social media to expose, to speak out their domestic violence cases. Back to the Shen Shen's case, the first case. It was happened. It happened in 2008. But for Kim's case, in 2011, there was no Twitter. There's no Weibo, Chinese version of Twitter, in 2008. But two years later, Weibo was established. And it's keep growing fast in two years and reached its golden age in 2011. And one reason could be the, the, the reason of social media, because Kim choose to speak out on social media. So what's the uniqueness of social media? And the public used to be information receiver, and they heavily rely on the mass media to tell them what issues are important and what, to, what issues are important and what to think about. But with the growth of social media, the information receiver transferred to information creator. They post their opinions, 
their ideology on the internet, on social media, and they tell the public, they tell the government, the media, what things they think are important, should need attention, should be put on the agenda, policy agenda. So the social media change the public from information receiver to information creator. And the growth of social media to China. Um, so social media grow fast in the world uh, worldwide, and China is no exception. So among all international user, uh, internet users worldwide, more than half are Chinese, about 700 million. And China has the most mobile phone users with, uh, in, the, in the world, with almost 90% of the population have a mobile phone right now. And one third of total Chinese population have access to social media platforms. And Weibo, I just mentioned many times, is a leading Chinese online social network. <coughs> a network. And this is a screenshot of an example of the Weibo. It's more like a combination about face, uh, of Facebook and Twitter. It has function of like how many followers, how many followers, how many posts, and her pictures, and also her connections, and more information about the personal profile, like where uh, is the residence, uh, living residence, the <coughs> age, the gender, and her habits and the places, the chatting, the places the person has been to. So more functions than Twitter. And this map shows, <coughs> this map shows the population, uh, map, uh, that shows uh, the social media usage uh, to the population of the countries. For example, uh, the Weibo, the number is equals to the population of Japan. Uh, but the new data shows Weibo has more than 600 million, but this map shows 120 million. So it's keep growing, and it's already exceeded the population of Japan. And the, uh, all social media uh, platforms are growing, and WeChat, there's no map, uh, there's no uh, population match for, the, for that map, but WeChat is another population, a popu popular uh, plat social media platform, especially on mobile phone by Chinese people. And intimate partner violence. So in the U.S., many terms has been used to describe this phenomenon, like wife abuse, wife beating, family violence, domestic violence, and then or violence against women, and then use intimate partner violence. In contrast, in China, the word, the term, terminology domestic violence is is dominantly used to describe this phenomenon. And the, in the U.S., the um, IPV, I sure that IPV includes um, physical violence, sexual violence, sexual, uh, psychological violence, or even stalking. It can happen among uh, current or former intimate partner, uh, partner among heterosexual or same-sex couples. Based on law of, uh, based on the law of China, domestic violence law now. So it's more focused on the physical harm of uh, the violence against family members. So the law includes the partners cohab uh, cohabit together, but not for dating, or like former, uh, not including same-sex couples, not including former intimate partner. And for all- Would that include children as well, in China against family members? Yeah, for domestic violence, yes. the law yeah, including child abuse. Okay. But when we like talk about this, uh, we, some, we most like, uh, we often separate intimate partner violence as 
when we talk about domestic violence, we always refer to, often refer to as intimate partner violence. And we use child abuse to refer uh, to the phenomenon of child maltreatment. Regular abuse, so to speak, against people who are not outside of the family, that's illegal, right? And comparable to the US. Like, it, it's not that the laws are more lax in general, it's specific to the family context, right? Yeah. Okay. And IPV is a, a serious social problem worldwide. And based on the National Intimate Panel Violence and Sexual Violence Survey in 2011, <laughs> And almost 25.6% um, of women, uh, including married or non-married, at least experienced one form of physical uh, IPV in their lifetime, such as could be, it could be physical violence, uh, severe physical violence, psychological violence, rape, or other sexual violence than rape, or stalking. And also have stats for men, almost 28.5% of men have been experience at least one form of this kind of IPV in their lifetime. Uh, in contrast, in China, there's no nationally, nationally representative survey to um, these phenomena of prevalence <coughs> of IPV. And um, based on the um, report of All China Women's Federation, they released a report among all to test, uh, investigate the prevalence of Marital violence is third. One third of women, married women, have experience of IPV in their lifetime. And other research, um, and one of my committee member Chen, he has done a lot of research uh, in China about the prevalence, and that's his student there. <laughs> and uh, it shows a big variation about the prevalence in China because different studies use different instruments with different samples, and so it's caused big variations when we test the prevalence of the IPV in China. Uh, but when we talk about the prevalence, we always use like one third of married women um, have experience of IPV um, released by all women's federation. Um, this map shows the policy making um, uh, stages of IPV in the US and China. So this map shows, we can see there's a 20 year lag in terms of legislation between the US and China. So in, 2000, uh, in 1994, when the US passed the first federal legislation of Violence Against Women Act in 1994, there was no domestic violence law in China. And that time, the first UN World Conference of on Women in Beijing was held. And from that time, the whole society realized domestic violence is a serious problem. So we it needs our attention, and many advocacy advocates start to do advocacy work back to that time, and also research grows in 1995 after the conference. So this conference has a big influence, a big impact in terms of the policy making in China. And in 2000, the first provincial regulation against domestic violence is released. It's in Hunan province, and then in 2001 the reform of marriage law. It is the first time in the history that in the national level law, the law mentioned domestic violence, this word. So there's one clause that domestic violence is forbidden, just one clause. And then many after many years of advocacy, lawyers work and research, so 
the National Domestic Violence Law, uh, the, the draft passed in 2015, and then law uh, start to to implement being implemented in in the March of 2016, so last year. And we can see the difference between the U.S. and China. And VAWA has been reauthorized in 2000, 2005, and then 2013 to trying to provide services to almost all victims of domestic violence, including LGBT community. Um, and you can see in the 1970s, the movement, uh, women's movement started the whole process. And that's a big impact. But there's no movement here to have an impact for the policy making of IPV in China. So that's also another difference. So based on what I talked, and so I'm, mot I'm motivated to, uh, so my research lies at the intersection of violence, social media, and also intervention. So violence is my research areas, my research topic, and social media is, I'm motivated by the growth of social media and its impact for the the field of intimate violence. And also, I'm really fascinated by using uh, computational big data approaches to um, examine intimate violence. And also, I'm interested to um, learn how to implement internet-based or mobile phone-based or <coughs> social media-based intervention to address um, intimate uh, violence. And one of my previous publications, um, investigate the contents analysis of all the agency. We, we systematically sampling 10% uh, of the agencies in the US serving abused women and to see if they have the website and if their website has linked to social media. And we found out almost 50 of the sampled agencies, they have social media links on their website. And almost a fourth, um, a quarter of the use Twitter to do advocacy. So I think it's a promising field to for advocacy organizations to employ social media to do intervention. And the results is the goal is to inform policy making and also professional practice of intimate violence both in the US and China. And so currently funded projects one of the projects is um, intimate and sexual violence topics on Twitter. It doesn't, it's not related to China at all. But this is one of my uh, current projects. So the goal is to explore patterns of tweeting and retweeting behavior of Twitter users. So for example, what kind of intimate violence topics are commonly and frequently discussed on Twitter. And we <coughs> use topic modeling to summarize and categorize meanings of tweets. And we found one of the um, salient topic is sports-related high-profile cases. Mm -hmm. And we separate the users sent from private uh, individuals and also from organizations. We found out organizations pay more attention for advocacy, for increased awareness, but individuals are more likely to talk about, commonly talk about individual cases, like the sports star, the movie star, their cases of domestic violence. And also, another um, paper investigates the conversation threats on Twitter. So we compare different topics of such as politics, uh, entertainment, uh, children, and like even relationship, and to compare with topic of violence against women, we compare the conversation structure 
of these topics and see what topics receive most retweets accounts and also how many people reply and how many people reply to the replies the, the depths uh, the depths of those conversations uh, this um, papers are all under review another research trajectory is you use survey methods to developing studies to develop studies on dating violence and rape perceptions among Chinese, uh, Chinese college students in China so one of my publication I uh, trans uh, translate uh, the rape myth acceptance scale, Illinois rape myth acceptance scale into Chinese, and then develop to do, to use factor analysis and develop a Chinese version of the rape myth acceptance scale. And that's an ongoing project. So the next step is to test what kind of risk factors have um, impact their their perceptions towards rape and sexual violence. And another um, project you also use in survey is to check the gender of parent and gender of child in child male treatment in China. And for this, uh, for this project, we found out boys than girls are more likely to receive physical punishment, and in particular from their father. And for, um, for mother, mothers are more likely than father to use psychological and corporate uh, corporeal punishment against both boys and girls. So that's one of the findings from that project. I, is that different than the findings from other countries? That's a good question. We didn't compare oh, okay. <laughs> it to other countries. That report we find from the survey. Any idea from maybe from other country? It's <coughs> um, fascinating finding, and um, I mean, I imagine it's quite universal. Looking at it through the lens of, of gender roles, gender socialization. Kim, do you know? I don't. I'm, I'm just kind of flipping through um, that critically important question. I think um, I think it's worth investigating, but I don't know baseline. Yeah, I look forward to any comments. <laughs> You can stop, stop me at time with any question. Um, I'm happy to answer questions or have more interaction. <laughs> um, just a quick question. Could you go back and um, you mentioned the, the statistic that 89% of um, people in China have mobile phones. And is that every single person or is that per family? Every single person. So the, the wife doesn't have to share the phone with the husband? That's a good perspective yeah. <laughs> because nobody has like investigated this before. But I assume it's based on the stats of every single person. That's interesting. Um, quick question about the, the domestic violence law was passed almost a year ago in China. Have there been any type of campaigns by advocacy groups to kind of push out the message that this isn't you mean after the law implementation? Mm -hmm. After. That's a good one. I'm going to talk about that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Next slides. Okay, so another project is dating violence among Chinese college students. It's also a survey to use a cloud model to test the prevalence and risk factors. But I'm more excited about the next one because it's under review now. And it's, uh, it's examined the information communication technology and IPV in China. 
So we, it, it, the method is survey, and then we found out the time usage on traditional and contemporary forms of information sources affect women's experience. For example, when women read more books, they have lower rates of IPV. But if they spend more time on the internet, they have higher risk of IPV. So we, our assumption is we assume like uh, serving, spend more time on the internet is like har give, bring harm to the communication within the family and then it's reduce the communication between the couples. And also we found uh, different options of online social media activity have effect of IPV victimization. For example, we found out serving online entertainment or sport news is related to lower risk of IPV. Yeah, I guess I'm just wondering how you're not able to rule up. I, I guess why why that particular mechanism is chosen uh, to associate um, IPV levels. Uh, what do you mean by? Also, oh, so you mentioned that you were hypothesizing that um, you know more frequent usage on the internet might be associated with communications breakdown, and I was curious as to how that particular mechanism was chosen versus others. Um, since, oh, yeah. since the next part with entertainment and sports news. Yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't pick it on purpose. Um, we just the survey we include all traditional. Um, traditional and the current contemporary forms of all the information technology. Okay. And we, we, we didn't hypothesis it's linked, but we find out there's association. It could be when, it, when they spend more time and they have high risk of IPV, or when, when they have more IPV, they chose to avoid to seeing their partner by serving spend more time online. So it could be either way. It's just association between these two phenomena. And, uh, sorry, just as a follow-up, um, when you say that it's women's experiences with IPV, is that is it a list of behaviors that they see or a perception of behaviors? Behavior. Okay. Oh. Do you think there could be a generational issue going on where older people have grown up in a culture where IPV behaviors are more accepted and therefore they don't perceive that they're under as much violence as they actually are? Whereas younger people who are online more, getting exposed to more, you know, modern perspectives, perhaps international perspectives, actually see the violence for what it is and therefore report higher rates of IPV victimization. I think that's a great perspective because for this, it is a survey and the average is, is uh, I mean, 35 years old, the average years old. And they're all married women, file divorce, that's a simple. Yeah, my question was really similar, just kind of wondering if this might be a, like a salience bias, basically, where like women who are consuming more, um, exactly that, like consuming more kind of international news and are learning more about the issue and therefore have kind of a different perspective on what they even consider to be IPV. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Yeah, and... Um, kind of just building on that, there's a... Um, you know, there's research looking at uh, reporting of mistakes in the hospital sector, for instance, and what you tend to find is higher mistakes, higher rates of mistake reporting, whatever the right way of phrasing it is, among safer hospitals than less safe hospitals, you know what I mean? So it can be that reporting these things is actually a good thing, you know what I mean? That, that like an increase in reporting is not a sign necessarily of an increase in the phenomenon, but it could just simply be an increase of awareness or willingness to track that type of thing rather than a suppression of it. 
So it's interesting, yeah. interesting to think about whether these, what, what is the meaning of the direction. Yeah, exactly. And so we also find like similar um, findings from Twitter about like the salient topics of mentioned sports and entertainment related topics. And based on previous research, like the news media more likely to convey um, victim blame, a victim blaming message. And we uh, our assumption is when the victims see the post, like see the news, entertainment, sports, they are more likely to receive or accept a victim blaming perspective. And then it's related to their lower risk of violence because another research shows in developing countries, if you don't challenge the male authority, you have lower risk of domestic violence wife beating. If you like more like feminist, um, feminist and challenge the male authority, you are more likely to be hit. So we related, we, so the, the goal of our study, uh, the discussion part, we discuss maybe for developing countries is. No, keep, don't finish your sentence, please. <laughs> I'll finish my sentence. So in developing countries, maybe the best strategy is not to promote feminism, advocacy, to um, take like the lead in the family. Yes, it's like we have to from step to step and then not to accept domestic violence, but do not to challenge male authority um, immediately. <laughs> so there's a strategy there. I just wanted to follow up on these discussions and measurement issues because it's a really big issue with all hidden harms like this. And you know, our, apparently our colleagues in public health have a word for it, they call it surveillance bias. Mm -hmm. And they know when they do a double-blind controlled study that if the control group is put under an MRI machine, they get sick more, you know, because they're just looking more closely. And, and a colleague here, uh, Malcolm Sparrow, has written a book on, called The Character of, of Harm, yeah. has said that any time a, a, a police department uh, has a new, for example, a new Violence Against Women program, a new hotline, uh, special officers, there is always an increase in violence against women, right? Always an increase. He goes, it's so, we know that so well that we need to build that into any uh, any advocacy program to let them know that if, once they implement a new hotline, they're going to see an increase because people report. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I just feel like all of these reporting issues are very, very important in some of these hidden harm issues. Another, maybe you should go very to the example. So another uh, under review ground <coughs> proposal is to assess the impact of national uh, na China's domestic violence law since its implementation in, 2000, uh, in 2016. So we uh, apply for grant, and then the next goal is to test effectiveness of the law. And um, still waiting for the result. Hope to come out in another two months. And. So the, the law is we are going to plan to interview key personnel from government agencies and medical facilities or other social work services. And we hope I can have a chance to share the result sometime in the future. So the research gaps is here is whether social media can be used to, uh, for us to open a new window to understand the phenomenon of intimate partner violence. And this project um, named Using Online Social Network to explore the consequences of domestic violence on mental health in China. And I'm going to talk about purpose, methods, results, implications, and limitations of this project. 
So the purpose of this study is uh, to see if IPV have negative outcomes such as depression, suicide ideation, self-esteem, lower sati uh, life satisfaction uh, right after domestic violence cases. So for existing research, they are measure the mental health standards even before, long time before the domestic violence or after domestic violence cases a long time. It's, domestic violence is hard to, it's unpredictable. So it's hard to just measure the, their mental health right before or right after their the cases. So this, uh, the project, um, the goal of this project is to explore the short-term outcomes of domestic violence on individuals' mental health. How short is the term? It's a month before the incidents and a month after the incidents. So innovation about this project is because domestic violence is unpredictable and we overcome the limitation of previous data collection methods is heavily based on self-report questionnaire. So we use online data, social media data. We extract the tweets messages from the social network and use their posts to analyze their mental health matters and also uh, before and after the domestic violence cases and to get evidence about the impact. And the model is a framework we use is online ecological recognition model. So this model definition is the used approach of using machine learning models to automatically identify psychological traits based on behavior data from online social networking. And so it's like this framework pro uh, provides very sim simple steps. First, how to get the data, get the data for this project. Second, how to choose a prediction model to produce the result. And then, how to produce the, again, the psychological traits of the mental health um, based on the uh, data online. May I just ask a question? What is your index for mental health? Yeah, I'm going to talk about it later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So the data we use is from Weibo. Uh, that's the logo of Weibo, we just took. It's an online social network in China. And our sample database is a pro of 1.16 million Weibo users and 50 billion posts from this uh, Weibo users. And we use API application programming interface to get the data from Weibo. It's public and it's free. And the final size is only 2,032 victims with their posts. I'm going to explain why later. And another, we have another matched group. It's, this is 232 victims. They are the victim group. And then we matched another group with 232 non-victims. They have no domestic violence um, experience. And uh, for the final sample size, the gender, 61% uh, of them are female. So how we choose the case from millions or billions of tweets? First step, we select the post containing keywords of domestic violence. Uh, this is all Chinese, all the tweets are Chinese. So we translate Chinese to here. And so maybe some like inconsistency, you feel like maybe it's weird because of the word that we translate from Chinese. So the combination, all the, there are nine types of domestic violence words, such as domestic violence, um, it's in China, it's jiabao, where DV is a short term about that. And mental, um, oh sorry, jiating bao li, and the four letters. And DV is jiabao, so there are two different 
um, translation or mental abuse, neglect, Carl Scott beat me, abuse, Bruce. That's nine halves. And we also pronounce like husband, hubby, wife, wifey, father, mother, or like children, son, daughter. So here we include not only intimate kind of violence, but also uh, child abuse. And with nine halves, 11 halves, it's produced. A 111 combinations about the words, and it's produced uh, 265,981 Weibo users that mentions the uh, keywords of domestic violence. And step two, we manually screening screen to identify the real domestic violence post. So they they have the post, but we don't know if they are really. They are the victims or offenders to experience domestic violence. So the inclusion criteria is the post indicate the Weibo users himself or herself is the victim. And the exclusion criteria is if it's discussing about news, like this uh, discuss about um, Leon's case about domestic violence, we exclude those Weibo messages. And if it's expression of opinions towards the policy, towards uh, organizations, uh, advocacy work, we exclude the post. And we hired a 69 research assistant. That's a lot. Cheap labor. 69 research assistant, which three students in each group. And the total, we have 23 groups. So each group, they evenly divided to 40, I forgot the number. <laughs> For almost 300,000 uh, web uh, posts, and they even like divide the, uh, um, the number. So like each group analyzed ten, almost 10,000 web posts, 10,000. And the three RAs in each group, they rate the same message, the, the same 10,000 messages. So if, this, uh, if the three RAs in each individual group, they have the rich agreement to see this post is the real domestic violence and this post belongs to the real message, the real domestic violence message. If there's a disagreement, they will talk about it and solve the agreement and make a decision. So all the messages have retrieved uh, agreement among all three RS in each individual <coughs> group. And then we screen out to the, fun, uh, to the next step is 644 posts with identified as real domestic violence cases. And then we labeled this um, six, uh, 644 post as three categories. One is intimate kind of violence, and then second, child abuse, and third, domestic violence exposure. So they are written, written, uh, written in domestic violence cases. And third step is to screening to identify the victim's first domestic violence experience. So if it's ever been, it's happened before, or it's happened all the time, so like posts containing words such as every time, always, or like occurred long time ago, we exclude those messages. We only want the first experience of domestic violence. And why? Oh, we had uh, three RAs, and they all depended to screen the uh, work, and then agreement reach of three RAs, and that's an example of inclusion criteria. For example, the first uh, category is clearly, if the post clearly states that it is the first domestic violence experience in the post, 
For example, one, one um, Weibo message example, my father is drunk again, but it is the first time he hit me. I don't understand why do you do this? What are you angry for? I'll be ex excellent someday. So this case indicates it's the first time his father hit this boy, uh, hit him, maybe not boy. And then that's a sign of the first time experience of domestic violence. For uh, we found seven two um, posts belong to this category. It indicates the first time of experience, uh, about one third of all the messages. Another example is clearly states that she or she, he or she have never experienced domestic violence before this case. For example, I choose to speak out, but she pushed me home because she was afraid of neighbors to know the truth. Yes, my biological father, who never beats me and rather scolds me in 10 more years, is hitting me just because of my stepmother. stepmother. So who never beats me. So it's a sign of this is the first time. And 15% of the old post belongs to this category. Another uh, example is IPV victim clearly states he or she have never been beaten in the family of origin, but now experience of IPV. So uh, after establishing intimate relationship with a perpetrator, which indicates that it's the first DV experience so far. For example, domestic violence. Ah, domestic violence is a facial expression like tears. And I have never married you for one year and got, got brutal abuse. In the past 20 years, not even my dad have touched me. I will remember today's violence forever. Mm -hmm. So it indicates no abuse from his orig her original family, but this is like the first time he was beaten by her husband, the intimate relationship. And we found nine, almost 9% uh, of the posts belong to this category. I'm going to share another category is clear states he or she uh, only tentatively tolerates this domestic violence experience just for one time, but never allow it happen again. For example, the post, this time I will endure. It is why I'm here that for you get drunk. Uh, it, it is why I'm here that for you to get drunk back and beat me. The next time, if there is this, I will never endure, even if you bring up my mom. So the translation sounds like a little bit weird because it's from Chinese. And then that's a direct translation from we didn't change much to we didn't correct the grammar, anything like that. We want to translate directly from Chinese to here. And 6% of the post belongs to this category. So that's our inclusion criteria for how we screen to get the first a victim's first domestic violence experience. And then we, we get <coughs> 232 Weibo posts with 232 victims as a final sample. Maybe I missed the part. Did you mention like the time range of your of the the time range like from in the past five years or? Um, oh, uh, no. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, just everything on the Weibo at this. Yeah, we have a data pool, and it's from the establishment of a Weibo oh. to last year. Okay. So it's it's probably more ten than ten years. years. Almost ten years of period. And the uh, 
final step is to select a matched group. It's a non-victim group. And we based on, we choose to also choose 232 uh, Weibo users. They don't have any domestic violence experience. So they don't indicate. For those posts, there's no keywords about domestic violence in their post. And we match them with using gender and the living residence to match the group with the victim group. And uh, any questions? Yeah, um, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of context about um, how public people are with this information on Weibo, because um, I, I find this really interesting because I think that in the US context, there's a lot of privacy and shame around this kind of, uh, around domestic violence. And I don't think that a lot of people are actively posting on Twitter or Facebook. Um, and if they are, it's a very specific group of people who kind of is already an advocate in that area. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, why it, why it may be different in this context that people are much more public about that information and therefore um, it seems like you have a good group of like a, a pretty standard population of DV victims and then like a, a pretty, you feel pretty good about your population of non-DV victims actually being non-DV victims and not just people who haven't reported on it. Yeah, I think that's a good question for, that's one limitation of using social media data. So you trust what they post on social media. There's no way to tell the non-victim group they are not victim at all, right? But based on, that's a limitation of the social media, which we just trust <coughs> their post, their profile. And for this, um, compared to the Twitter and also the Weibo, um, so these users are individuals, they are not organizations. These uh, 232 users, they are not organizations, they are individual. They just post their experience on Weibo. It is a good point why they want to speak out on Weibo, but more and more people, when they post, they, maybe they have no idea. Like, they, they don't want to attract attention, they, they just want to gossip and to complain and they want too many <coughs> comments. When people give comments and comfort them, they feel more uh, secure, they feel more comfortable. And that's one way to express your opinion and to get emotional support. So uh, I think that's one point. And for uh, for the victim, and for for that's a that's a data we can only trust. That's from the victims and non-victims. It's sometimes the victims feel helpless when they reach out to the police department. So uh, and they're trying to get help from the social media, and a lot of people actually feel like that once, right? Yeah. Whereas in the United States, that might be quite different. Do you agree? Yeah, I, uh, from my analysis from the tweeting behavior, we analyze what kind of topics are most, common, uh, com uh, most commonly mentioned on tweets. We find out individuals more likely to tweet other people's domestic violence mm -hmm. cases instead of themselves. In America. Yeah, but there's no direct comparison like from um, equivalent time and <coughs> equivalent keywords there's no study for that maybe that's another promising project to do to compare why or do qualitative study why people want to speak out on social media for their private issues and or another reason could be the policy 
there's a lot of advocacy organizations. Like all the town, almost all town, or at least the city, has a domestic violence um, center, right? For sexual assault center. But in China, no. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no hotline, almost no hotline to call so to seek help. So social media, like in China, can can serve like a potential platform to seek help. Maybe the victims themselves didn't realize they are seeking help. Yes. And for the key variables for how we me measure mental health, we um, mental health status is includes depression, suicide ideation, and life satisfaction. So that's the three key variables for mental health status. And the period lasts from eight weeks. So <coughs> for um, like the boundary of the domestic violence, the first time of victim, dom uh, first time domestic violence cases, four weeks before the domestic DV cases, and four weeks after the cases. And so how we get the depression, suicide, ideation, life satisfaction, we use the uh, online social network dynamic features. And we use uh, linguistic in inquiry and word count features. For example, positive emotion words, family words. We use the Chinese version of the IWC. And then it's a natural language in processing tool to get a psychological and linguistic traits about written expression. And also another uh, 11 behavior features for example, the counts of the words, the counts of the URL use, or counts of at name in the post. So that we, uh, examples, that's our behavior features. So each users will have 88 plus 11, a total of 99 dynamic features for depression, 99 features for suicide ideation, 99 for dynamic features for life satisfaction. <coughs> uh, there's a map, I can show you that. And for depression, um, we have a prediction of model for depression. And that's an established prediction by previous work by Hu et al. 2015. And this, um, the model shows its correlation coefficient between the real um, self-report scores achieved um, point, uh, point, uh, 0 point, uh, 0 0.39. So that's a high coefficient based on the prediction model. Um, for prediction models. And also for suicide ideation, we have the prediction model. And life satisfaction, we have the prediction model. I can show the analysis process. Is that's the boundary of the first time, the first time domestic violence happens. And we back to four weeks of the domestic violence happens. And for, for, for each week, one individual users has their features, behavior features, uh, 11 behavior features, 88 LIWC features. So for each week, they have 99 features for each of the mental health status, depression, suicide, or life satisfaction. And we take the mean value, the average of the four weeks, the features as the feature of depression, as a feature of suicide, as a feature of life satisfaction. So we fit fed these features into the prediction model to get the result of their mental health status. And the same procedure goes through the four weeks after the domestic violence cases. 
So for each individual, uh, individual for one week, they have 99 features, and we average numbers of 99 features for four weeks, and we got each score of depression, suicide, life satisfaction, and fight into prediction model. And that's uh, um, and this is for the victim group, and we run the same analysis for non-victim group, and we we uh, one one point to mention is so different individuals experience they have different time of uh, their first uh, first DV experience the time is different right so we just take their their time so uh, for example. Um, for user one, uh, her uh, DV experience happened um, September 20th, 2017. Well, for user two, her DV experience happens uh, October, August 1st, uh, 2017. So we just take that date as the T1, the DV ex uh, happens, and then go back to his or her own individual four weeks before the DV as the features. And the results shows uh, for the 232 victims, uh, female takes 61%, uh, and the, um, 124 people provide their information, age information online. So the average age shows 23. And for victimization type, 17% shows type of IPV, and 60% are involved with child abuse, 17% involved domestic violence exposure. and. Uh, for the re living residents, almost 68% um, from eastern of China is the most affluent area in China, and only 3% from the northeastern. And the result, the results show we uh, also remove, eliminate the pre-existing difference between the victim group and non-victim group to see if they have significant difference in terms of their mental health. Um, before the DV happens that time, and then we didn't find any significant. So it means um, there's no difference between this group for mental health. And for victims, we found out for victim, all the victims experience domestic violence. They are they have more. They suffer more depression after DV, and then they have more suicide probability after DV, and then they have more hostility after B DV. They become more hopeless after DV and then they have lower life satisfaction after DV, but no significant changes found after the non-victim groups, after the, before the uh, four week and after four week. So from this we see DV victims show increased risk for mental health problem after DV based on the um, data. And we also compare the differences of different types of DV. Uh, one type is IPV, the second type is child abuse, and third type is exposure to DV. And for intimate partner violence victims, 40 of the victims, they show more depression after DV, but we don't find significant difference for suicide or life satisfaction. For so IPV victims, they are more likely to experience depression after DV. Um, and for child abuse, we found more is they have lower life satisfaction. And for exposure to DV, for exposure to DV um, is also different. 
because for after the DV experience, people ex witness um, DV, they have more higher risk of suicide. They are more likely to commit suicide after ex being exposed to DV, and they have more hostility uh, attitudes towards life after DV. And before after is four, four weeks before DV or four weeks after DV. So we call it before and after. So limitation about um, is just mentioned. We heavily rely on the um, the profile information, and we just rely on their uh, messages. And limitation about is we we can just choose where we just get information from those people while waiting to expose their TV experience on social media instead of those who didn't choose social media. And also one limitation about the study is the exposure um, section, exposure category. Um, we only examine the one type of exposure, but research show if the like, public exposed to more than two types of DV, they are more likely to have mental health issues than exposure to one single type of uh, violence. An implication about uh, a study is we have we show the short-term effect on mental health um, problem after DV, and then we use innovative methods, public online social media data, and we hope the research findings can be used as a in prevention or intervention tool for advocacy organizations to see this is like sh even one month after DV, they have serious. Um, have increased the depression suicide probability. And for this year, future, um, so I have three um, goals. One is research at WAP, and then teaching at Philadelphia. So fly back and forth from two cities, and also have my community engagement services in Boston, uh, a lot of student groups and community services. And I look forward to see you again, and then uh, I don't know why I keep quiet. <laughs> I know this is a really heartbreaking topic. Yeah. And well, there may be a few questions now. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah. I was wondering whether like, the frequency of posts would um, affect the accuracy of um, the results of the mental health. Because maybe one one user will post like 10 posts a week and the other will post like every two weeks. Well, one, two posts a week and does that affect the accuracy of the I think that's a good question. Well, based on the result, it's all the users have an average of 160 posts for the four weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's like 40 posts for each week. Mm -hmm. That's the average. And the standard deviation is not high. That's a good question. Illinois recommends acceptance scale 
to be used in China to access uh, college students' acceptance level for towards sexual violence. And then first step, we, we translate the questionnaire and made, create a valid Chinese version of the questionnaire, and we found differences. Because when we translate, uh, many um, Chinese students um, uh, express similar, uh, one example, they express similar victim blaming attitudes towards the victim. For example, short pants, and then top, topless <coughs> top, and then they feel like, if you dress like that, they, it's your responsibility, it's your victim responsibility to be ripped. So that's similar between the US and China. But we found other differences. Uh, here is sometimes is the place of the rape. It's like the place with um, the bad side of the town. It's the word from the uh, survey. So there's a bad side of the town. For example, in Philadelphia, we say never go to West Philly. It's dangerous. But China is like, we don't have bad side of the town. So it's like even distributed similar everywhere. So we only have weak security. And student is not a salient um, uh, factor for Chinese, among Chinese stu college students. Like the weak, the se weak security is the factor contribute to the rape. Do you know what I mean? I was wondering if there was a difference based on whether this respondent was a male or female rather than the difference between the US and China. Yeah, it's more males more likely to accept some force statements about rape. But females tend less blame the victims. But male is the it's consistent with the research here. So males are more likely to blame the victim than females. Yeah. And they believe more about they accept they have more higher acceptance level for many rape, force rape for force. Yeah. Okay. So uh, building up, can I ask a question? Yeah. Okay. Um, building up on that point about perception difference between uh, the, the sex of the responders. Uh, so uh, is there a difference on Weibo or any other social media where male users are more aggressive in terms of expressing their views on these topics, or have you ever looked at the um, social media usage of male users in that sense? I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, before I took my flight yesterday, I discussed this point with my advisor in Bhutan and find out when male are the victims of IPV, like people are made fun of. Huh? Mm -hmm. on, online. Uh, both online and offline. It's happen it's also in China. It's like you are so weak, but like beaten by your wife. So it's like <coughs> so it's if that's the true for all social media, like um, and then male are reluctant, more reluctant than females to post their experience online. So we only have thirty nine percent of male victims. Just wanted to mention it's 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 a little bit different from the work you're doing. But um, the crisis text line here in the U.S., uh, which I think has a global dimension to as well, has collected a lot of um, real-time text from people who are seeking help because they feel depressed or have been victims of IPV, etc. And they have a um, very interesting way of mapping that data that kind of shows that some of our assumptions about when suicidality occurs, you know, in the evening versus the morning, um, don't necessarily follow in certain zip codes. 
So you may find that some of the work that you're doing right now might benefit from a conversation with the folks at the Crisis Text Line, because they're interested in very similar things, but from a different point of view. And again, it's different. You're, you're trying to uh, access data that people are just reporting. They're not necessarily asking for help, where people contact the Crisis Text Line because they've self-identified themselves as in a crisis and wanting help. But I think there may be some important resonance, and I think your work is really very important. I'm a clinical psychologist, and an emerging trend of how do we use social media not only to uh, reach people, but possibly as an interclinical intervention. Thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you for this presentation. Um, please work with me. I'm still trying to figure out this question in my head. But so um, I think it, it's really interesting to think about countries because of legislation or, or other reasons that are like somewhat lagging behind the U.S. in a lot of respects in, in response to domestic violence because of the work that part violence is an issue. Um, and I think you point out some really interesting things that are maybe mirroring some of what has been done in the U.S. because of we see a lot of data and a lot of the narratives are reminiscent of some attitudes that, that a lot of men and women hold in this country as well. Um, and also pointing out some maybe innovative or newer ways to approach this issue that we haven't really thought about in the US. I'm wondering, in light of some of the great progress that has been made um, in the past you know, 30, 40 years in the domestic violence services and, and um, rape and sexual assault prevention services fields, um, that have also started to garner a lot of pushback because of some of the shortcomings of those models, um, particularly pushback from men and from men's rights activism, which uh, my view is growing and gaining some more steam um, and a lot of buy-in, actually, from folks. Um, I'm wondering if, if there is thought in crafting these types of interventions and responses to doing things differently in hope of avoiding that pushback um, and trying to be uh, cognizant of some of the failures that we've experienced here in terms of reaching the large population, even though there have been many, many positive steps made um, to prevent and to address violence. I think that's a good point. Um, that's a good perspective to think of, and I think this field is promising. Um, I don't have the answer right now <laughs> for, for that. And one of my dissertations uh, talks about the um, um, not my own, my dissertation. My dissertation talk about the how to use social media to understanding the policy making of IPV both in the US and China, and in terms of level of organization to employ um, social media. And we want to know compare the two countries, and like China is like far behind US in terms of legislative uh, approach, but in the social media. Um, uh, around it by social media environment, maybe China can better use social media to exceed, you know, to um, be ahead of the policy making and by including many more victims, potential victims, offer more services to um, exceed, exceed the U.S. in terms of policy making due to social media. But we don't know the answer yet because it's really limited research in this field. And I don't see, I don't see any research to talk about social media and violence against women right now. So it's for my view, um, 
it's hard to give or answer to such questions. topic and we need people like you you know <laughs> out uh, pathbreaking doing pathbreaking research to help us think in novel ways about these challenges I hope your vision of, of, of you know people who have been behind leapfrogging ahead and pulling others forward is, is uh, comes to fruition um, please join us next week Aparna Yoshi who's um, the Arnold family professor of management at Smeal College of Business at Pennsylvania State University we all Pennsylvania folks <laughs> is, uh, um, toward the end of the month now. Um, she's gonna, she, we're going to shift, this is a, a seminar about uh, gender and public policy, and we're going to shift back to um, women's leadership advancement next week. Um, she's going to talk about new ways of thinking about gender and leadership effectiveness. So hope you can join us for that. Thank you. Thank you.